Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you for an hour of science now, and I have my amazing team, or one of my amazing teams, on the line with me now. Good morning, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. I'm just, I'm just buzzing today. Beautiful, sun, sunny day. COVID numbers are really low. I'm happy. Full of love for Melbourne today. It's all happening. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. 14. How exciting. 14. I'm just hoping there were, there were more than 14 people tested. That's what worries mm. me. You know, because Melbourneians okay. are sneaky folk and they probably realise there's two ways out of this. One is to just not get tested, no one, and the other is to do the right thing. Hopefully they'll choose the latter, but you never know. Good morning, Dr. Linden. Good morning. Two days in a row, Dr. Shane, where our maximum temperature is higher than the number of cases. So I've got to be <laughs> happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you bring a meteorological bent to that, the whole thing of COVID. Um, although it's, it's going to hit the fan later in the week, isn't it? I think. Is it going down? Yeah. So By we, hit the fan, you mean hit the heater because it's going to be yeah. pretty gross. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, well, you know, because it's that time where you think, should I change the sheets over to the the summer sheets? Should I keep them as is? I don't know. It's, it's a difficult that's scenario. It. Yeah. Weather weather affects everything, doesn't it? It does. Now, uh, we're going to jump straight into some news because we've got three really cool guests coming up later in the show. I have to start with Dr. Crystal because she's doing a story that when I first saw this, I got very excited and then I tempered my excitement with some proper reading. Uh, Dr. Crystal, do tell. Some very exciting science announcements in the field of astronomy this week when phosphine gas has been detected in the clouds around Venus. So this is a a really curious and tantalising discovery because the uh, scientists who who detected this gas, phosphine, have ruled out any non-biological mechanisms to to create this gas, leaving the suggestion that it could actually be made by living organisms as phosphine is made on Earth. So really interesting science. The team from Cardiff University, led by Professor Greaves, um, first detected this um, gas from a a telescope in Hawaii and they were really surprised. They're like, oh, this is really interesting and a bit odd. So let's validate it. So they also went to a telescope um, in Chile and both telescopes found the same thing. There's this phosphine gas detected in the clouds around Venus. Now, detecting phosphine around a planet isn't too unusual because it does occur in the atmospheres of Saturn and Jupiter, but there it's the atmospheric pressure and the, the weather conditions, the convection and the, and the, the um, conditions in the atmosphere on those two planets don't exist on Venus. And so the researchers look, well, how else is this phosphine gas getting there? They looked at, is it volcanoes? Is it lightning? And then they looked at all the other sources of phosphine, they could really only account for less than sort of one ten thousandth of the concentration that they were seeing in Venus's atmosphere. And they're like, well, if it, it's either some kind of chemistry that we've never seen before or this phosphine is actually being produced by microorganisms as it is here on Earth. So it's a really fascinating observation um, and people are starting to hypothesise, you know, well, are these, obviously these microorganisms couldn't be on the, on the surface of the planet because Venus's surface is like 
400 degrees Celsius? Are they living in the clouds? You know, it's still a very acidic environment. Phosphine is quite a toxic gas. You know, what would they have to look like for this um, for, for these microorganisms to be there? And so whilst it's an observation and it's a hypothesis, there actually may be some opportunities in the future to actually take a look because there's a couple of missions to Venus that have been proposed for sort of later this decade, um, the Veritas mission and the Da Vinci mission, and next year NASA's going to decide whether or not to progress with one of these missions, which may actually be able to sample and directly look at the Venus atmosphere to detect whether or not the, this gas is there in the concentrations they think it is and whether or not there's the presence of anything else surprising that might be living there. Yeah, it's so, so cool. And it, I have to say, it vindicates some of the comments I've made over the years of, you know, Mars, 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 Mars. What about <laughs> Venus? Come on. And all of a sudden now there's excitement around Venus. Oh, we better go there. And I get that it's a long day. Like if we put, you can't really put people on Venus because it's like, what, 200 and something Earth days per day. So that's a long day. You don't want to work that long. So I get that. I get why Mars works better. But boy, there's some interesting stuff that's going on there. And Venus has so many cool things. Like it takes longer for the, the planet to rotate, I think, than for it to go around the sun. That's weird. Yeah. It also goes a in the wrong direction. Which is weird. And it, it also goes in the wrong direction. So the rotation, so the sun would come up in the west rather than in the east, which is kind of cool. Um, I think Uranus is the only one, you know, it's on its side, so it's the only one similar. But it's got so many cool things about Venus that uh, we just, we don't, you know, I don't know. It's around the same size as Earth, you know, 0.9 of our gravity. And I think it's just really fascinating that we're so obsessed with finding life on other planets. And it could actually be some present on our very nearest neighbour. And yeah. while on Mars we're looking for signs that life may have existed there in the past, we're detecting a signal which could indicate life is actually present right now yeah. at some level. Yeah. Of course, it may not be, let's be fair, it could actually be some unknown kind of atmospheric chemistry we've never seen before. But actually, from a chemistry point of view, that's actually pretty freaking cool too. Yeah. So either way... It's a fantastic discovery. It's been really robustly validated and I think it also points to the fact that Venus would be such a cool place for us to go next. Yep. And, uh, you know, I really, my, my money's on Enceladus and Europa and now Venus for current life. You know, Mars rolled like, yep, cool, let's go set up a base there. I'm all for it, but uh, let's not forget that nice, you know, little bright thing in the sky we see most nice. Anyway, uh, moving on, Dr. Linden. I also love that study too, uh, led by women. All the interviews I saw gave about that um, cool new study, Dr. Greaves' um, female researcher. So women are from Venus and they're finding more things on Venus. Oh, also. see, I knew that was going to come up sooner or later. But, but I saw a great tweet about that during the week. Someone said, you know, we get the men from, uh, from Mars thing, but don't send all of the probes there for crying out loud. It was a, <laughs> a really, I like that tweet. Yeah. That's anyway. a good one. Well, bringing us back here to Earth, uh, Dr. Shane, you know that, one of the movies Dr. Alien I love the most is The Day After Tomorrow. Classic Dennis that Quaid. Classic, classic Dennis Quaid 2004 blockbuster where Dennis Quaid is a climate scientist and he discovers that the Gulf Stream, that current of warm water that goes from uh, the Gulf of Mexico up towards Greenland along the east coast of the US, that's broken down and over the course of very short period of time, there's massive <laughs> uh, crazy weather events and an ice age. This this film in the climate science community. It's a great movie. It's super fun, but scientifically fairly inaccurate, largely because ice ages don't just happen over a very short period. They happen over a much longer period of time. Can you that. see the disappointment in my face? <laughs> yes, I can. I love that film. <laughs> 
Look, but look, okay, it's not all terrible. It is true that if we have big changes to our ocean currents or to the big conveyor belt that connects all of our oceans together and moves energy and water all around, then there are big implications for the weather and climate. And people have been looking at this Gulf Stream for a long period of time to see if they can identify some changes in the the flow, the ocean flow or the energy flow. But we don't have a lot of direct observations of ocean water movement of that part of the coast. Actually, they only put a probe in uh, in 2004. So when that movie came out, they started monitoring continuously water flow along the east coast of the US. So a new study that came out this week in Nature Climate Change has taken a different tact to try to see if we can find uh, or identify a slowdown in this current. Other studies have used sea surface temperatures because the theory is that if you've got a lot of uh, melting ice of the off Greenland, then you're going to get fresher, cooler water in the northern part of the Atlantic, and that's going to lead to uh, less dense water. Less dense water is less likely to sink, and if it doesn't sink as much, then it's going to slow down that big conveyor belt and the whole current system. And we are seeing some temperature differences. In fact, that little blob in the North Atlantic is one of the only places in the world where we're seeing a cooling as opposed to a warming. But this study, this new study this week, has looked at something different. They haven't looked at temperatures. They haven't looked at the movement of water or the movement of energy, no transport like that. They're looking at differences in salinity on the surface of the ocean. And they've broadened their uh, scope to the globe and, and the whole Atlantic region. And what they have found, these researchers from Ohio State and Peking University, they've identified what they're calling a salinity pileup in the subtropical area of the South Atlantic. So kind of off the coast of Brazil, they're seeing this pileup over the last 70 years of, of salinity, of more salt in the water. And their theory is that if we've got a slowdown of this current, of this Gulf Stream, so less water's moving from, you know, Florida up along the east coast towards Greenland, then the water that drains into the Gulf of Mexico and into that Florida area also can't move as much. And that's exactly why we're seeing this saline kind of pile up because the South Atlantic water can't move into the North Atlantic and can't kind of keep that conveyor belt going. Mm. Yeah, this is the first time that people have really looked at a remote indirect uh, signal of the slowdown of the current. Um, It's another sort of line of evidence. There's more and more evidence suggesting that the the Gulf Stream and these conveyor belts are slowing down, but it's hard to tease out what's year year or decade to decade variability. Mm. But it's, um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good study, I think. And it also tells us, you know, Dennis Quaid, like he, he could almost be on the money with changes in weather because if we get these changes in circulation, it can have a big impact on yep. heat waves in the UK and all these different things. But his time scale was just way, way off. <laughs> well, it was a two-hour film. They had to move fast. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the thing, right? Uh, good stuff, though. Interesting stuff. It's good to see this being sort of confirmed in different ways. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? I'm going to stick with the Florida theme. So um, I've been reading a really interesting article about the Florida wood rat. Um, And as you can, so it's actually called the Key Largo wood rats, and they're obviously only found in the Florida Keys. And they live in a very small region, which unfortunately humans have really ruined for them. So a lot of the woodland was uh, raised to put in pineapple farms and golf courses. And so these population of rats actually ended up in a very small area. What they then realised is that a lot of humans, again, um, unfortunately, were dumping rubbish into the area 
And the wood rats were actually making that their home. So the wood rats were were forming nests in cars and in you know disposed rubbish bags. And so conservationists said, okay, well let's let's use this. And so they actually went and bought a whole, built a whole lot of artificial nests out of PVC tubing and using some of the rubbish that had been dumped, which is an interesting idea rather than cleaning it up, which is what I would have thought would have been better. <laughs> but um, this study that's come out this week is very interesting because it's looking at whether that actually changes the environment for the wood rat. And in particular, whether or not it's more likely to spread diseases. And obviously, we know that rats can carry things like leptospirosis and the plague, which we don't want to encourage. So this study actually looked at the nests that were formed in rubbish piles and the nests that were formed within the remaining forest. And really interestingly, they found that both of them were actually more clean than than normal rat nests were. And in particular, they actually contain bacteria that producing antibiotics. And they're producing antibiotics within the erythromycin family, which are very useful for humans. And so the, the authors said, you know, this is actually quite exciting because it's a potential area that we might be able to harvest new forms of antibiotic um, that maybe we don't know about yet. Mm. Uh, so I quite, I quite liked it because it's obviously a really nice study looking at, you know, what happens when we try and help, um, you know, a population of animals to survive in a new environment. You know, just the importance of checking that it's actually not changing their homes. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. It's really weird too. Like the, as you say, the initial thing would be get rid of that garbage, sort it out. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that it has this effect and they're, they're utilising yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I still think we shouldn't actually, garbage the place, but hey. No, exactly. But it was actually very interesting. I was reading a bit into it and they said, look, they, they tried that at first. They tried cleaning up the area mm. and then realised it was just a losing battle. So they went, okay, let's work with what we've got and, and see if we can maintain this animal population. So uh, it seems it. that it is working. Excellent work. Uh, thanks, Dr. Lauren. Thanks, Dr. Crystal, Dr. Linden. Triple R. Uh, this is what happens when sometimes a guest doesn't turn up and Dr. Shane has these spidey senses that can tell when this is going to happen. And for that purpose alone, he keeps the team, the news team online. Um, thankfully, Dr. Linden and Dr. Crystal are still there on our call, which is fantastic. And we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about the Ig Nobel Prizes, which uh, Dr. Linden, do you want to give an explanation of what they are? Because I think most people have heard of them these days, but they're not the Nobel Prizes. They're even better. Yes, the Ig Nobel Prizes, I think, from a science communication point of view at least, are even better because I think their motto is they make you laugh and then they make you think. They are uh, awarded every year from Harvard University. They've been running every year since 1991 and they've got different fields and they they talk about research that is unexpected or a little bit uh, out of left field, would you say? Last year, Australia picked up a gong, picked up an Ig Nobel for the research that examined why wombats make cubic poo. Cube poos. Yep, that was great. Cube poos? I've never heard that one before. Oh, I just made it up just now. (laughs) And we've picked up a gong again this year. Uh, some researchers from Swinburne University and uh, the Department of Mathematics and <sighs> the Centre for Nanotail, Nanoscale Biophotonics have won the Ig Nobel Prize for Physics. Ooh. Now, I'm not excellent uh, in, in this field, so I'm just going to read. Can I just read yeah, yeah, the, do like, it. Yep. the thing of the media release because it really captured me. 
vibrating a slightly inebriated earthworm on a subwoofer speaker in rural Victoria has not only helped to land Australia one of the world's most popular science prizes, it may radically change our understanding of how the brain functions and how we interact with it. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. It's I just so have good. this image of a little worm that going, you know. Something like that. Okay, um, I understand. Dr. Crystal, you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but worms um, have have senses that are somewhat similar to mammalian nerve fibres. Is that correct? Neurons. They have neurons. Uh, neurons? They, they do have functioning neural systems, yes. <laughs> and you can, um, you can anaesthetise them quite quickly using vodka. Well, that's helpful. That is helpful. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah. You know, with these things, I always ask the question, though, why? You know, what made you think to do this in the first place? I I can see that you got something out of it, but were there just some worms crawling across that subwoofer and all of a sudden you had that moment, that eureka moment where you just, this is going to pay off. I'm turning that subwoofer up. Well, no, no, I think this comes from the theory and I hope that we maybe can get these researchers on the show in the Mm. future to tell us about it in more detail. But I think the theory comes from this idea that the brain can function using uh, electric pulses that come from yep. the nerves, but also from uh, a sound wave. They can also, it can also be stimulated by sound wave type signals. And so they thought, let's have a look at uh, what we can stimulate from these worms by putting them on a subwoofer. Why it was in a Victorian shed, that we'll have to ask the researchers ourselves. Yep. I think one of the interesting things about that research was also they were kind of looking at how, you know, um, the the body having us like having a soft sort of body respond to vibrations and trying to use that modelling for robotics to sort of say as we move from hard robotics into sort of soft surface robotics, how can we study um, the, the sort of the physics behind how that uh, how those surfaces interact under vibrations and earthworms were the perfect model for that. Yeah, no, it's super cool stuff. And I have to say, you know, with all the, all the really bad news coming out about universities at the moment in Australia and all the staff losses and Swinburne that's not immune from that, it's nice to hear a, a good piece of news um, like this would be the fun that's coming out as well. Dr. Crystal. My other favourite Ig Nobel this year. Now, I just have to say the Ig Nobles don't have set categories. They kind of just like, you know, yeah. look at what categories they want to have this year. <laughs> and so this year they awarded an entomology prize um, to a piece of research that showed that um, there are entomologists, people who study insects, who are actually extremely afraid of spiders, which are not insects. And so this piece of research looked at the fact that there's this, there's this overrepresentation of arachnophobia like in entomologists, just showing the fact that there is actually a big difference between six legs and eight legs. So hang on, let me get this straight. Entomologists that study insects, are, they're, not, they're not afraid of insects, but they're afraid of spiders? Yes, there's, there's a lot of entomologists, in, people who study insects for a living, who actually have arachnophobia, a fear of spiders. Yeah. And, 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 and so it's just like, and insects have six legs and spiders have eight legs and somehow that's the difference. Do you know what? You know one thing I don't understand? Because I'm, I'm mortally afraid of spiders, as you know quite well, Crystal, from so many years of interacting <laughs> with me. Um, and, you know, even just talking about them, looking around the room now just to make sure there's nothing of that to crawl onto me. But I don't like most insects, right? There's a lot. But I'm, I'm very, I don't know, can you have 
have uh, species, I think, with regards to insects. Like ladybugs, good to go. Crickets, I'll pick up. Centipedes, keep up, keep the hell away from me. And spiders, um, I wear very large shoes. Um, yeah, I just... Oh. Yeah. This research study did actually look at the traits which entomologists found the most fearful about oh. spiders particularly. So they did actually go down to that level of detail and they said, well, what is it about spiders that you're particularly concerned about? And, you know, one of the top respondents was, well, they bite, clearly. Yep. Yep. Um, they have many legs was actually one of the top <laughs> respondents. <laughs> um, They're bloody hairy. Was- They're hairy. <laughs> the way they move. Yeah. Um, no, Harry was much lower down the scale. Oh, really? So much lower down the scale, yeah. But the way they move was also one of the top um, reasons why these entomologists uh, nominated spiders as being more scary than insects. Oh, well, see, I, I the think, movement's um, a bit freaky, I suppose. But, you know, octopuses kind of move weird and I don't mind them. Lyndon? What about millipedes, Dr Shane? Where do you sit on Oh, no, keep away, keep away. Too many legs. Yeah, don't like it. <laughs> but also, interestingly, they then looked at, well, what other animals, exactly what, what other creatures might feature high on your list, um, and actually ticks outscored spiders. Ticks? Really? Yeah. That's very surprising, yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, entomologists uh, are interesting. There's also a lot of, uh, you'd know this, Dr. Chris, a lot of venom research that comes out of spiders that um, is really important. And I I know a couple of um, venom researchers, actually, who are are quite afraid of spiders, but they get other people, and I hate this phrase, to milk the spiders. Um, Oh, yeah. So they then get the stuff in a vial, and they do really interesting work on on spider venom, um, but they don't interact with the spiders themselves because they're really afraid of spiders. So, yeah. But they... I think that's pretty healthy to have a, a healthy respect for spiders. But you're right. The, the chemical compounds in venom, are the, the complexity of the molecules that are found in venoms have helped um, people discover new anticoagulant therapies, new heart drugs, you know, really fascinating new novel compounds that mm. have been then gone on to show that they do have uses in, in medicine. Yeah, Lyndon. Uh, just like with the, um, the drunk earthworm study, this study makes me think why. Like why has this researcher done this examination? Are they trying to uh, champion more spider lovers? Are they trying to champion more spider scientists and take entomologists across to to the arachnologist field? Well, my, my understanding was that it arose from some commentary on an entomology kind of um, uh, space, like, like online entomology kind of uh, forum where lots of entomologists were actually secretly sharing that they're scared of spiders. And I think based on that observation, someone wanted to do some actual research to get some data. And so that's where they thought, okay, I've made an observation. How do I set up a study to have a look at this? Pretty and cool. so really, I think that that's where it's come from. And, um, and, and just, I think it's actually really fascinating to think that um, if they were arachnophobic from a young age, did that then influence them to try and get into an area where they would challenge themselves, but not too much? Like, you know, what led them from being um, scared of spiders to loving Insects. Yeah, see, yeah, I, I, I didn't. I did not go down that direction. I was scared of spiders, and I went for lasers and physics—the sort of stuff I could use to get rid of spiders rather than spiders themselves. But it's super interesting stuff. The Ig Nobels are interesting. They're more interesting most of the time than the Nobels. At least they're more fun, that's for sure. And uh, it's good to see local people getting involved in those as well. If anyone wants to put in an Ig Nobel application with the Einstein and Gogo crew next year, I'm sure we'd be up for it because we love that kind of stuff. It's good science communication. Dr. Linden, Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for pulling me out of this hole of a. What I call a, a guest non turnerupera situation. Um, very helpful. Triple R. We have our first guest 
on the line now. Her name is Jane Rantel. In fact, it's Dr. Jane Rantel now because she's just recently graduated from her history PhD at La Trobe University. Jane, welcome to Einstein and Gogo. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the line. Now, you are doing some work that's a little uh, off the science track a bit, but still super interesting. And we met as a result of the um, 20 and 20 application process, and you were one of the the applicants of the many, many applicants that um, put in some really interesting stuff there that sadly I couldn't get everyone into the room at the same time, but uh, yours was particularly interesting. So we thought we would get you on separately. Um now, first of all, your PhD is in history. So tell us a bit about what that's like to do a PhD in history, because uh, often we talk to PhD students who are doing lab work and so forth. But what did it, what did it look like to be doing that in, the, in history as a subject? So with the history field, yeah, it's, it's really quite different. Um, you know, we do a lot of archival work, occasionally oral histories, mm-hmm. um, and that would count as, as field work. Um, but for me personally, it was a lot of time spent in archives, a lot of reading newspapers, um, government publications, um, yeah, and those sort of things. So it's very much, it's very much sort of a, um, a one, an, an individual process mm. in that sense as well. Um, and we don't really um, publish, um, especially not to the extent as our science yeah. PhD. Yeah. yeah. Now, now you, you've been looking into various aspects of Indigenous Australians and how our cultures sort of interacted with with all of that over over the decades. When when you mention archives and so forth, I'm curious how sort of I suppose believable is some of that documentation relative to the realities of the situation, especially when you go back, you know, hundreds of years. I mean, what what do you find there? Is it com- like, is there stuff that's really appropriately written or is it all sort of totally biased? I mean, tell us about that. That's a really interesting question um, because a lot of my archival stuff actually was um, more recent, so mm-hmm. in the late 20th century, um, particularly the late 80s and early 90s um, up until the present. And so the tone and the language that was being used by, you know, report writers and politicians, um, it is quite interesting and it is less, um, I guess, on the nose as it would have been in the yep. past, but also there were, you know, there was definitely some um, issues or uh, ways that people would frame things that were not great. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting to discover that yeah. and to think about why and what, what has changed. Yeah. And so, and tell us, go, let's go through your PhD and what you were looking at, because I think it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, when I saw this, this idea of symbols of reconciliation and various monuments and so forth, it sounds, it sounds great on the surface, but um, I mean, give us a bit of a flavour of what you're investigating. Yeah. So, that's exactly um, what I found as well. It, this idea of um, memorials and monuments being um, created um, in the name of reconciliation and um, a lot of community work was definitely... Um, Involved between um, Indigenous peoples and um, and non-Indigenous people, um, but often what I found was that it was a bit um, surface level, especially in some of the the larger projects. Um, so that includes um, something like in America, the um, there was an Indian memorial built at the Little Bighorn Battlefield, which mm-hmm. um, some listeners may be aware of. Um, and so when you find that these bigger projects are created, um, often some of the nuance can can be lost. Um, and there can be um, governments can sometimes use them as an as a way of overlooking um, or ignoring some of the other issues that Indigenous communities um, are wanting to talk about. Right, and, and and when these sorts of projects are produced, uh, one of the things I suppose I have in my mind is just the sheer 
number and scale of different sorts of people that would be involved in making sure that that's appropriate and, you know, tells a detailed history and is communicated well and uses communication methods that, you know, can can engage with a lot of different people. But I, I'm also probably of the mindset that this may not happen. I mean, what, what, what have you seen in your experience? I mean, what's some good examples there where that's true? So, everyone from a five-year-old to a, a 90-year-old can engage with it given their different lived experiences and so forth? Yeah, um, the, I think the best example is actually here in Australia, which is um, really awesome, um, the Mile Creek Massacre Memorial up okay. in New South Wales. Um, and so that was very much a community-led project, um, a group of equal numbers of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people from, um, from the area. And this was built um, what, 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the level of, of care that was taken with crafting the information um, and uh, sort of continually keeping that up to date and adding information and making sure it's uh, widely available to, you know, um, primary school children up into, you know, adulthood and beyond. And um, that work is really important and, and I think it goes to show the importance of community involvement um, to have that ongoing work. Yeah. And, and in terms of the, uh, I suppose, future work in this space, I mean, there's, there's obviously been a few of these memorials and so forth um, built. Um, I'm sure many people listening to some of the examples you've mentioned may have never seen them, may have ne- never even heard of them. Um, is there a need for a lot more of these and to be done in more sort of, I suppose, visually prominent places, you know, like centre of cities and so forth where where people would see, you know, I mean, you know, uh, places where the, the crowds would be larger, where people would be more aware, where the education can actually have, you know, really profound found benefits if it's done properly? I think it's sort of, I, it, that's a really tough one, to be honest, and it's one I, I did um, think about a lot during my research um, because I think as well as, I think there is definitely a place for these um, larger city-centred um, monuments and there's um, Reconciliation Place in Canberra. Your listeners mm-hmm. might want to Google that one. Yep. Um, but then I think ha- also having those smaller, um, more locally um, affiliated memorials are also very important because it, I think especially when you're dealing with uh, memorials that are commemorating or um, mourning, um, you know, violence um, against Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples, um, it's really important to have people in, commu- in towns and cities understand their own connections to that. So sometimes if, if they are in um, larger settings, it can be a bit easier for people to have that um, sort of that removal from, mm. from the history. Yeah. And in terms of the sort of benchmarking, are, are there any countries in the world that are doing this well at the moment? I mean, obviously, there's some some activities here in Australia. It sounds like there's less in the US. I, I suspect New Zealand's probably going okay. But I mean, what, what's the sort of benchmark that we want to get to? Well, that's quite tough. I think it's a fairly mixed bag. And I think actually probably looking at definitely those more localised um, examples are probably a little bit more helpful, actually, um, because sort of for, for every um, instance of a of a really good proactive memorial there may be an opposite um depending on on the situation mm. so yeah i think it's really important to definitely look at um the local and the national when you're talking about these sort of things um and it helps to give a more complete picture but not necessarily an answer yeah um that makes sense. 
Yeah. So what's um what's next on the list for you? You've finished your PhD now, and um you you have a you know you're in an area that's of, of great interest to many, I think, and and an area that needs you know, so many more people, you know putting their heads into how to, how do we get this right in the future and and engaging with so many more people. I mean, I, I'd love to know, I mean, sorry, I'm asking five questions at once, but I have so many, so many questions like, uh, I'd love to know like the statistics on how many Indigenous researchers there are who are doing the sort of work you're doing as well and, and you know, whether or not we need to put a lot more money into that. But I mean, putting that aside for a second, I mean, what's next on, on your agenda post your PhD? Uh, for me, it's definitely, um, I, w- I would like to publicise my research further basically yep. and, and and have it more widely available so that people can, you know, if if people are interested in creating their own um, memorials, this can be a piece of literature that um, that may help them, you know, avoid pitfalls. It might not provide answers, but it might show people what not to do or um, things they can think about um, if, they're, if they're looking to do that themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, sounds great. It's good to good to hear that this stuff's going on. And um, I, I suppose a lot of people aren't aware, they don't think about the, the fact that there's so much research and, and that to be done here, especially, as you say, around the archi- archival work, um, which I can imagine, is that fun getting into the, the bowels of museums? and libraries and so forth and looking through the dusty files no one wants to t- touch anymore? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm getting to, you know, read an old newspaper from 40, 50, 60 years ago that you could, you know, no one's ever touched or um, diving into some politician's, you know, files and seeing their little scribbled notes um, that were not meant for anyone's eyes at the time, <laughs> those sort of things. It's always, you know, it's it's great to have those little moments of like, oh, this is this is juicy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what have you got, like, what's the most surprising thing you ever found? Was there one thing that sort of really sticks out, out in your mind in terms of something you dug up in the archives that was, um, you know, just either outrageous or just like, holy cow, you know, I didn't realise that we were still doing this, you know, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, there, there's probably been many, to be honest. I can't even think of one specific instance. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's a tough question. It's, um, look, it, it's been great chatting to you, Jane. Good luck with your ongoing adventures post-PhD in um, in this weird sort of wacky world we're in at the moment where no one knows what's going to be happening at least uh, in the next few years. But uh, thanks for chatting to us on Einstein and Gago and keep up the good work. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Folks, that was Dr. Jane Rantel, um, who did her history PhD, just finishing recently at La Trobe University. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. On the line now, I have uh, Alex Maisie. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology at La Trobe University. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Shane. Look, it's great talking to you. I, I saw uh, the information about your work and I just couldn't go past it uh, when it first came across my desk. You're working on the superb lyrebird. Now, before we get into why why all of a sudden there's a bit of heat on this bird on it being ridiculously amazing, just give our listeners a bit of a rundown on this bird its characteristics and so forth. Well, we've, we've all probably heard of the lyrebird and possibly got to know it through David Attenborough's Life of Birds series. And, mm-hmm. of course, it was shown in the, the series reproducing all these incredible sounds in mimicry um, in its courtship display. Yep. And the courtship is really what has made this bird so famous. So they they sing and they, they dance, and with this dance they, they mimic a range of different birds that they can hear in their environment. And, of course, famously in Attenborough's documentary, uh, it had all these human origin sounds of camera clicks and drill mm-hmm. drives. So that's what's really made them so famous. 
Yeah. And do you know why they do that? Like why they mimic those sounds in the courtships or the rituals? Because uh, do any other birds do that or are they alone in that? Well, it's actually really interesting because about 60% of Australia's birds, uh, songbirds can mimic. So that's actually a really high percentage, but none go to quite the degree of the lyrebird in making that mimicry such an integral part of the courtship display. Mm. So it's really evolved as part of these complex courtship displays and there's there's actually people actively working up at Western Sydney on uh, why they're doing this and why they use these uh, incredible mimicry um, in their, as part of their call. Yeah. Now, give us a, just a little bit more on the, the bird itself because it, they're quite large, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're a large passerin. So a passerin's a songbird. Um, and they're, so they're a bit different to brush turkeys or chickens that also scratch in the soil. Mm. But they, uh, because, because they're a songbird, they actually sing beautifully. So they have this gorgeous um, song which they can produce through a, a very different syrinx in their voice box. So it's a completely, like if you look at a chicken syrinx, it's like just a jumbled mess. And yep. you think about the sounds a chicken makes, it's not very impressive. But a lyrebird syrinx is this beautifully structured songbird syrinx. And um, they, they sort of got this impressive tail. The males get grow these really big curly feathers that look like a lyre and uh, that's why they were named the lyrebird. And um, the females uh, are sort of a similar size body but the tail's much smaller and yep. darker. He really has to camouflage into the forest. Yeah. Oh, look, they're incredible. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis over the years on the American beaver because it's a, it's got this incredible ability to build stuff, right, to move stuff around and, and do stuff in a way that my understanding was no other animal can do that to quite that extent, right? Yeah, correct. But but your work has shown that the Australian superb lyrebird leaves it in its dust with regards to moving stuff around. Do tell. Well, uh, so what we were looking at was the the role of lyrebirds as an ecosystem engineer. So that's where the beaver came. The beaver, of course, changes the physical environment in ways that affect other species. And yep. the lyrebird does a similar thing. But the lyrebird does it through foraging for food. So I, I mentioned that claws and scratching like chickens, but they actually have much larger claws. They have a really broad sort of um, span of their, their claws and they move a massive amount of soil. And this was the first thing that I went out to measure. Um, and I, I calculated to our surprise that they're actually the, the world's greatest soil displacing animal uh, on, on land. So that was that was actually quite a remarkable thing to find. Now, when, when you talk about displacing soil, I, I, I suspect, suspect like, like me, many people will be thinking about chickens scratching around you, moving things. But your calculations demonstrated that the amount we're talking about here, and correct me if I've got this wrong, in a year is the equivalent of 11 standard dump trucks of soil. Yeah, per lyrebird. So per lyrebird. Uh, yeah, so if you can try and um, envisage 11 dump trucks worth of litter, leaf litter and, and soil, that's what a single lyrebird in the Dandenong Ranges is moving on average in a, in a single year. So it's a, a remarkable amount of soil. And they do it by facing uphill and scratching the leaf litter constantly. So if you watch a chook, it sort of does a scratch and then it moves back and it has a few picks and yep. tries to catch whatever it's unearthed. But a lyrebird is looking and scratching at the same time. So they're constantly picking up food and constantly scratching out soil downhill. And with these powerful claws, they can they use gravity. They're not, they're not sort of shoveling it uphill. 
but um, they, they move this extraordinary amount of soil. And it works out to a per hectare basis about 155 tonnes per hectare, but that's hard to imagine, imagine what that actually looks mm. like. And that's why I sort of talk about it. 11 dump trucks per live because that's a bit more meaningful. Yeah. Oh, look, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, now, as the second I start thinking about this, I think that must have a major effect on the ecology uh, of the region that the Lyabird is in because you can't move that much material and not affect everything around you, right? Absolutely. So that was, that was sort of the next part of the question. The first thing was how much are they actually doing? And then the next part was, what does this do to the microhabitats on the litter and soil? And uh, this this was quite um, interesting. We were expecting it was going to be big. And, for example, leaf litter depth, where we fenced lyrebirds out, leaf litter depth was three times deeper after a two-year period um, as at, just because the birds weren't burying and mixing that litter and they just weren't – they're like little composters. And uh, when you lose that, that bird from that area, the leaf litter piles up and, of course – that probably has really big ramifications for forest fires. And if you can imagine how devastating a fire can be to a forest, mm. uh, with the impact of lyrebirds, the forests might look very, very different without them actually doing this process all the time. Yeah, it's fascinating. How are the lyrebird numbers tracking in Australia at the moment? I mean, we know so many species have been affected, especially by the fires last year. How are our lyrebirds going? Yeah, this is a, a really important question now because lyrebirds, all of my life, I've worked with lyrebirds since I was very young and they've always been sort of secure and widespread and nothing to really worry about so much. But um, with the megafires of last year and, and early this year, um, BirdLife Australia estimated about 40% of the lyrebirds' range was burnt. Mm. And all of a sudden we're asking ourselves, well, actually, are these a threatened species now? So um, a project that I'm working on with BirdLife and Latrobe, and Latrobe Uni, are actually we're looking at exactly that, how much is affected and what does it mean for the species? Um, how, how extensive has this affected the different habitat types? And um, where are the refuges going forward? So they're the really important questions now. So nobody nobody knows what the numbers are across the whole the whole range of the species, but um, it, it's pretty sure to say that lyrebirds have been very badly affected by these fires. Yeah. Alex, uh, how long have you got to go on your PhD? I've submitted. Thank oh, you. you've submitted. Thank goodness, that's excellent. So uh, no no return uh, from your reviewers yet, or is it uh, done and dusted? Where are no, you? I'll be, I, I, I will possibly be waiting some months with COVID, I think. But yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll see how long it takes. I'm hoping on the they, – they sent me an email saying maybe up to four to six months, and I thought, oh, gee, that's <laughs> a long time. <laughs> I always thought it'd be great if you could sort of attach a check to your PhD submission. Not, not as <laughs> – not as a bribe in terms of passing, but as a bribe in terms of, you know, take a few days of unpaid leave from your normal job to read my bloody thesis a bit faster. You know, that's that's the way I'd like to bribe these people to get it done. The, the wait can be excruciating for PhD students. So, look, I hope you don't have to wait that long. Um, Thanks so much for chatting to to us about this today. I reckon it's great that you know people have something to be proud of with the lyrebird being able to remove uh, you know move eleven dump trucks of, of material a year on their own, which is just phenomenal. They're such an integrated part of our our um, ecosystem. So uh, good luck with your. Um, Feedback on your PhD, and thanks so much, Alex. No, thank you very much, Shane. Folks, uh, that was Alex Maisley. He submitted his PhDs in the Department of Ecology at La Trobe University. I'm going to have to leave it there, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Einstein to Go Go again, and we will chat to you again next week. We have a great show coming up. Uh, Dr. Jen's 
science communication students will be taking over the studio next uh, week. And for those of you who remember this from the last 10 years, will know that it's always one of the best shows that we produce every year because they put so much hard work into getting all that done. Until next week, uh, remember science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo every week and stay safe out there and keep obeying the rules. The numbers in Melbourne are really coming down, which is very exciting. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.